WeWork Europe. The podcast of the European Centre for Workers' Questions. Hello, and welcome to this episode of WeWork Europe, where we have a special guest for you. This time, we're going to talk with Christa Schweng, the 33rd President of the European Economic and Social Committee. She is from Austria and has been Chair of the EESC since October 2020. When she became EESC President, Europe was already coping with plenty of social and economic challenges, such as the pandemic, as well as the digital and green transitions. In the meantime, the war in Ukraine began and has had a tremendous impact worldwide. So, there are currently plenty of open questions which the EESC addresses in its opinions, and we're going to listen to some of them in a bit. According to its constitution, the EESC is a consultative body of the European Union, established in 1958. Its purpose is to represent civil society on a European level. So, there are representatives of employers' organisations, trade unions, and it also has social, occupational, economic and cultural origins. The EESC currently has 329 members. The EESC issues between 160 and 190 opinions and information reports a year. It also organises several annual initiatives and events, with a focus on civil society and citizens' participation, such as the Civil Society Prize, the Civil Society Days, the Your Europe, Your Say Youth Plenary, and the European Citizens' Initiative, ECI, Day. So, first of all, we wanted to know from Christa Schweng how the multitude of challenges and transitions which we're currently experiencing has affected the work of the EESC. Well, from the very beginning, it was quite clear that we needed to uh, work on the recovery from the pandemic. So this was one of my priorities, of course. And uh, from the uh, what we've already asked from the very beginning is also that we need support for uh, SMEs, uh, for enterprises, and also for, for people on the ground, of course, for workers, people, etc., we were quite quite clear that we needed something like this recovery and resilience uh, facility that uh, then afterwards popped up. Um, and when it comes to the war in Ukraine, uh, this was already uh, from the very first day. We had our plenary on the 24th of February. So already on the 24th of February, we did a first discussion on Ukraine and the possible outcome and impact this might have on the European Union and especially on the people in the European Union. What we did uh, from also quite quite soon were, that we were adopting two resolutions. The first one dealing with really consequences of the war in Ukraine and also on Europe. And the second one calling for the membership of Ukraine uh, to the European Union. And we issued and adopted this, this uh, resolution one week before the Council agreed to grant uh, candidate status to Ukraine. So we're quite, I think we're quite up to date and we're quite proud of that. The war on the borders of the EU fills people with uncertainty and fear. It also leads to consequences at the economic level. Which are the most pressing ones? 
Well, what we see first and foremost is, of course, that we have quite a lot of uh, people coming in from Ukraine, so uh, mainly very, very well-educated women with children, uh, which means that we have to receive them, that we have to grant them access to the labor market. This was also in the first resolution that we adopted, uh, asking for this temporary uh, protection directive, and that was triggered also uh, shortly afterwards. And I think this is really important in order to give uh, those women a chance and also support them with humanitarian aid. So for us, this was this was really an important issue. Um, when it comes to the consequences of, of, of welfare on the European Union, well, I have to say um, this is combined, of course, also with the recovery from and, and, and resilience from, the, from, from COVID-19, from the pandemic. So this recovery needs to be a point, a starting point, where we can tackle also the twin transitions, meaning the green and the digital transitions. And therefore, we've called that the money that is used there is really used in the right way in order to encompass and cope with the structural changes that are there and that are necessary. But how can you make sure that this money is being used accordingly? Well, what we've asked and what we are co currently monitoring is how is organised civil society involved uh, in first drawing up the plans? And here the result was not very positive, I have to say. And in a second phase, we were monitoring in all member states uh, if the money is going to to the point where it is really needed. And also there we saw, because it's one of the requirements of this uh, recovery and resilience facility, that organized civil society is involved and has a voice there. And what we saw is that not, that not all member states uh, acted accordingly. The multitude of crises poses a threat to social cohesion. How can the EU cope with that? inflation is increasing and the economic outlook is decreasing. And what we see also is this energy crisis that's, that's coming up and this anxiety um, of, of uh, politicians, but also people that next winter it will be getting cold and we will have, we have to face issues like uh, can we heat our apartments, etc. And of course we see all that. Uh, what we did uh, in the ESC before Ukraine started before the war in Ukraine started was that we said we need to deal with we need to 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 have a look at energy transition because energy transition uh, was already on on top of the agenda way beforehand the question was always how is it done this fit for 55 hmm? um, and our conviction is you can only do it together with people. You can only do it with businesses. You can only do it if you have everybody on board, not only businesses, but also, of course, workers, consumers, everybody. And if you don't have this societal agreement, it will be difficult to achieve these kind of goals. And therefore, we think what's necessary now is really to invest everything we have and can do in renewables and to try to, to work towards that uh, transition ASAP. Apart from the repercussions of the war in Ukraine and the pandemic, which are the most urgent topics the EESC is currently working on? Don't forget that we are still in the middle of a transition and the transition is always something uh, where people feel a little bit insecure. And when I'm talking about transition, I'm dealing about green, I'm talking about green and I'm talking about digital. We know that around 90% of all jobs will require 
digital basic knowledge, at least basic, basic knowledge. So having some sort of digital competence is no longer an option. It is an absolute must. And we have people from all uh, age uh, ranges, of course, on the labor market. And we know that the older they are, the more difficult for them it is really to cope with these changes. So uh, leaving nobody behind is one of the goals and one of the messages that we always uh, uh, put forward because we strongly believe that everybody deserves and needs the opportunity and, and deserves the chance to get the education and the training and the skills that they need in order to be performant on the labor market and also in order to, to, to be part of society. Because we see also that this uh, digital transformation is, of course, everywhere. And if you're not able, for instance, uh, to, to work on a computer in order to fill out your tax form or your tax reimbursement, uh, then you have a problem. And, you know, these kind of issues trigger us. Uh, and the, the, the green transition, uh, just to mention that as well, is equally important to us. I mean, um, energy transition is a big uh, step towards renewables. It requires a different mindset. It, it requires a different way of thinking. Let me just give you the example of our um, circular economy stakeholder platform that we are having, which is a um, collection of, of best practice examples. We have, meanwhile, se over 700. And they uh, just show how industry, how certain professions change in order to work towards a circular model. And this is something that attracts huge attention from all over the world. So we are working also in that field. And for me, this is, um, first of all, inspiring uh, it gives the possibility, we, we have that uh, this platform uh, established together with the European Commission, I have to say. Uh, but this is something where um, people who would like to think in that direction can get inspiration from. Given all these transitions, there is a real threat that too many people will be left behind in the EU when it comes to economic or social equality. How can we ensure a just transition? If you look at the data and if you look at the Gini coefficient, you see that there is not much movement and uh, that Europe has still one of the most egalitarian societies uh, in the world. But uh, what is true also is that we see that if you don't have the right skills, if you don't have the right opportunities on the labor market, uh, and if you are, I don't know, um, then you, you have the risk, of course, of, of, of dropping out. However, the level of equality respective to inequality depends highly on the country you live in. That's true, yeah. But, for instance, let me give you the example. Uh, how many people do have a tertiary education in uh, Europe? We are around 40%. And if you look uh, to Ukrainians that are coming here, they have a tertiary education of around 73%. So there is already a huge difference in 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 these in in education. I think education and skills are one of the main topics that we need to tackle. For another episode of We Work Europe, we travelled to Bulgaria, where we met people who don't see a future on the labour market in their country. The brain drain is a huge problem. What is the EU's answer? 
Well, first of all, let me say that uh, the migration is rather low, the migration rate. We are talking about 4% of people. And for the first time since 2011, we saw a drop in 2020 of people, more people returning than leaving the country. So, you know, this trend is kind of is kind of reversing. Um, what can be done is, of course, uh, making life there as attractive as it was, uh, as it is in, in, in other countries. Uh, this has to do with the with the conditions uh, that they find themselves in. Uh, that has to do with, of course, the social system that usually pays for for care, um, and that, of course, has also to do with um, with the will of people. But let me also say that leaving a country uh, is and and having the possibility to go to another country has to do with the freedom of movement. And the freedom of movement is one of the four freedoms that we have in the European Union. And this freedom, of course, is uh, to be to be respected at at one hundred percent. But we see the issue of of brain drain. We see that point, but we think that people that come back um, have also something to bring. So this kind of circular migration and this this brain circulation is something that can also be uh, enriching for the country that first of all has been left. 2022 is the European Year of Youth, which has encouraged young people to engage with the EU and to experience political empowerment. In what way does the EESC support young people to make their voice heard? Since uh, about 11 years now, we have our Europe Say, which is an, an, an annual activity where we bring students from all over Europe together to Brussels, um, they are carefully selected uh, beforehand, and uh, we give them two days where they they deal with a, with a specific and given topic, um, adopt resolutions, learn how to debate, uh, do that of course all in English, which is also uh, an interesting experience for them. What we do as well, this European Year of Youth was something that we supported from the very first uh, moment because we thought it's it's extremely useful. Uh, what we also do is that for the COP27, um, we have a youth delegate. So in, our, in the ESC delegation, we always nominate one young person that is then a member of this of, of our delegation and that participates the last years. It was only virtual, of course, because it was not possible to travel. But uh, we have that young person with us and we're going, we're just in a selection phase uh, for, for the next year. The EESC recently came under some criticism. Some people argue that this advisory body is overfinanced without having sufficient impact on real policymaking. How do you respond to this critique? Well, you know that uh, probably your uh, uh, the, the people listening to us uh, don't know it that well. Uh, the ESC consists of employers, of workers, of consumer organization, agriculture, of sectoral organization, etc. And what we do is that we work on the basis of consensus. And if these groups can agree on something... I can tell you that it's a safe ground for politicians to lean on because then they know that this is something where they can build on. Um, 
so this is the way I respond to that. Don't you believe that people like uh, workers, like consumers, that they don't deserve a voice at the European level? An important initiative that came to an end in May this year was the Conference on the Future of Europe. You have been involved in that with the EESC. Now, after the final report has been released, how do you evaluate the results and will they be implemented? We had a delegation of 18 members being present at the plenary of the of the of the conference of the COFOI. Me myself I was part, I was observer in the executive board. Uh, so uh, participating in all the preparatory work uh, that was that was ongoing. Um, and for the results, I have to say I'm pretty satisfied with the results. I was very, let's say, I didn't expect too much at the beginning. And I was extremely positively surprised by the contributions that came up and by, by, the, by the joint discussions that we had in the working groups. The recommendations as they are, they are really good. Huh? They are really extremely interesting. And uh, what is now important is that we follow up on them. And this is what DSC has recalled from requested from the very beginning. We said we need a dashboard. We need something that allows citizens to see and monitor what is now being done with the results. Because if you have a recommendation and then it's, it vanishes and everybody turns away and says, so what? This would be really in vain and this would create super frustration, which we don't want. But what we want is to show citizens you had your say and this is going to happen with your say. I myself participated in the working group on health. There was what, what I particularly liked there was also the call for strategic autonomy for the European Union. So which is very much in line with what uh, is necessary, I think, for the time being. One of the requests of the final report was a more structured dialogue with citizens. Do you see this structured dialogue under the umbrella of the EESC? Of course we see that we have a central role here to play, no doubt about that. The Conference on the Future of Europe has devoted a lot of time to EU social policy. Why is there such an ambition to strengthen the social dimension? If people feel insecure, you need to secure them, to reassure them. You need to to accommodate also their anxiety, their nervosity, etc. And this you can do by giving out the, the, the main call that nobody is left behind, first. And second, showing that this is not only an empty call, but really offering to each and everybody the chances he, she needs and deserves. In the run-up to the Conference on the Future of Europe, you asked for a new narrative for the EU. Can you tell us what that new narrative should look like? Now, now looking back, it sounds a little bit um, naive. At the time, we were talking about uh, the Europe, what is the European Union, and it was always meant as being a peace project, and peace at the at you know, and we're talking about one one year ago, huh? and one year ago, peace was nothing where you attract a lot of attention for young people who haven't lived uh, through Second World War, so it was always given. Now it has, of course, changed since the 24th of February. But at the time, we said we need the reconnection between Europe and the daily life of its citizens. We need to show that Europe has an impact on the daily life of citizens. We need to... We, and our narrative was we are a guardian of shared fundamental values. Uh, we have... Um, we, we stand for multilateralism. 
um, we had um, we and we need the the civil society in the driving seat. So it must be all together shaped with the help and the support and the involvement of organized civil society. And this is uh, what also came out of the of the conference of the future of Europe. This was Christa Schwang, president of the European Social and Economic Committee. This institution is an advisory body to the EU and publishes political opinions on various economic and social topics. The interview was conducted by Ralph Wershinger in the EESC office in Brussels. Thanks for listening to this episode. In the next one, we're travelling to Lithuania, where we talk to people who are crucial to our economic status, truck drivers. We're talking about their working conditions, how they've changed over time, and how these drivers cope with being away from their families for months. And we present the work of an ESA member centre that supports these workers. If you like We Work Europe, please give us a five-star rating or subscribe to our channel. Also, we're very interested in your feedback. Just send an email to isa at isa.org. This podcast was narrated by me, Rebecca Sharp. Script and production by Escucha, Audio Identity. This podcast receives financial support from the European Union.